This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the No Bullshit Leadership Podcast brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Chris Hurst, author of No Bullshit Leadership, and in my day job, I'm global CEO of Havas Creative. Leadership is difficult, but not complicated. In this podcast series, I want to help you cut through the bullshit and get to the heart of modern leadership, which, put simply, is the power to get stuff done and make stuff happen. In each episode, I'm joined by a different inspirational leader who is doing just that, leading change in their worlds of business, sport, or politics. My guest today is Sharmadine Reed, MBE. Sharmadine grew up in Wolverhampton. I was born just down the road in Cannock, by the way. Graduated from Central St. Martins with a first-class degree and became a brand consultant and fashion stylist for Nike and ASOS. She founded War Nails in 2009, which changed the landscape of the beauty industry with its innovative brand, salon spaces, and early adoption of social media. In 2018, to launch her second business, Beauty Stack, Sharmadine raised nearly £4 million in funding, which made her one of only 10 black female entrepreneurs to raise that level of venture capital. And most recently, in 2021, Sharmadine launched her newest venture, The Stack World, a networking community for like-minded and mission-driven women. All the while, she has been consistently documenting her journey and her experience, as well as organising business events for young female entrepreneurs. She was awarded an MBE in 2015. Welcome to the podcast, Jarmadine. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I want to take you back to your childhood, first of all, if that's OK. So you grew up as the eldest of four children to a single parent in Wolverhampton. Uh, do you, did you find yourself in an early position of responsibility, do you think, as a consequence of that? Yeah, 100%. I remember being nine or ten years old and, like, holding my sister, feeding my sister, um, like putting her to bed, putting her to sleep. I definitely um, grew up really fast by mothering and, and by being a second mom. However, you know, I don't necessarily know if that was a bad thing because now I have an 11-year-old son myself. We live in London. Um, you know, between me and his father, we have no family. Like 
you know, wider family in London. And I often reflect actually on how this is the first time in humanity that people have lived without second, third, fourth generations, like all around them, um, supporting. I, I think it's wholly unnatural to raise a child in a city by yourself. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it any other way. Yeah. And, and, and also you've, talked about that that environment you grew up in as being an incredibly supportive environment where you were told you could be whoever or whatever you wanted to be that that just seems to be such a an incredible start for anybody is that how you view it is that how you feel about it today look kind of looking back on it i suppose yeah i would say that we weren't like rich in wealth but we were definitely rich in community and i like just to paint the picture my grandparents who you know were born in Jamaica and came to Britain um, they had 13 children between them I had eight aunties um, the rest of them were uncles plus each one of those you know aunties and uncles had children so I had probably 70 or 80 cousins then we had the church we were Seventh-day Adventists the church is another 100 or 200 people who are looking after you and I was definitely a curious and capable child that everyone felt like an aunt to me. You know, in the black community, whether it's Caribbean or Nigerian, you, you hear the words aunt or mom used mm. indiscriminately against any, mm. any older woman. Mm. And, uh, you know, auntie, people say, yeah, even yeah. though they're not your blood relative. Yeah. So I felt like I had an almost infinite amount of aunties and moms who were essentially looking out for my well-being and men actually too I remember one of the elders at church Mark Palmer he was always super supportive of me like doing anything I could do so I take I took it for granted at the time but when I think now the worst thing that anyone can do to a child is say that they can't do something or they're not capable or they're not good enough and I I definitely didn't have that. Actually, I had teachers as well. Do you know what? I was really lucky. My teacher, Mrs. Forster, Mrs. Maguire from primary school, I remember them all. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it says it all that you can actually remember your primary school teachers' names. I mean, to my much <laughs> to my shame, I can't, although I'm older than you. And so so my next... Well, they really... Actually, actually, Mrs. Forster really changed my life. Because really? Mrs. Forster is the person who made my mom fill out this school application form to go to a school called Thomas Telford, which was 20 miles away and a whole like ordeal to travel to, to get into. And that school was a city technology college. Mm -hmm. It was, uh, you know, funded by corporations. They had internet. They, it, it was a technology school. It mm. changed the trajectory of my life completely. And had Mrs. Forster not actually said to my mom, you should really send her here. She's capable of going. Um, you know, things could have looked very different for me. Yeah, that's a that's an incredible story. I mean, I mean, you've you've half answered my next question. My next question was in amongst this, you know, this huge community of people, uh, relatives, and I suppose friends, and uh, just just the wider community. My question was: Were there some particular mentors in amongst that group uh, as you were growing up? I guess you've mentioned a few of those. Was the was the one or two that particularly stood out, particularly, I suppose, that, that helped shape your view as to what your career possibly might be or what your future might be? Do you know something? I would say that the biggest influence on where I could be and what I could do was actually through media. Mm, um, really? So when I was young, probably from age five, so, I, I, you know, we had no money, but we had cable. Yeah. and. 
we had we were like the only people on the street to have cable TV. I remember <laughs> this little black sky box with like the red letter, you know, the digital red <laughs> numbers. <laughs> right. And um, I remember Sky One like being the first channel that I ever like watched on cable. And cable showed me a whole world that like, exploded my world um, age five. So that would have been 1989. So I grew up watching The Bold and the Beautiful, Dynasty, Ricky Lake, Jerry Springer, watching MTV. I, dis I spent hours watching MTV. Then when I became around 11 or 12, I started buying fashion magazines with my pocket money. I would buy Vogue. Can you believe that? Like a 12-year-old in Wolverhampton. <laughs> I remember the news agent that I had to go to to get it. Then I'd buy Elle. I'd buy all of these teen magazines and fashion magazines. So media was essentially the internet of my time, right? Like it showed me the possibility of what fashion and art and culture and like, you know, uh, business, because I was obsessed with watching Oprah as well right. and, and all of these chat shows and, um, you know, daytime TV shows with my mom. And I was like, wow, that is glamorous. Like I'm on you know, sitting in Wolverhampton in our council house and yet I'm watching like the bold and the beautiful and there's all these possibilities. So I would say my mentors definitely were a composite mm. of American <laughs> American icons. That's, yes. you know, yeah. literally what I was influenced by. And I, I read that you chose the course you wanted to study at Central St. Martins when you were 12. But do you think you've always been the sort of person who kind of has a long-term plan yeah it's funny you talk about this because I'm really at a kind of juncture at my life right now where I feel like I fulfilled many of the plans I set for myself at a young age and now I'm like oh what should I do now what next I've done everything I said I wanted to do wow I have always been a long-term planner and I would say probably an imaginary like I have a strong imagination and at the extreme end of it, I could be called a fantasist. But when I was a kid, I would lie in my bed looking through these magazines, listening to the radio, watching TV, thinking one day I'm going to do that. I'm going to be there or, you know, I'd like to build this or I'd like to launch this. And um, I would say I kind of have my life mapped out till the day I die, <laughs> assuming I'm going to live long, of course. Um, but I definitely know, have a, a view in my mind of what I'll be doing at 40, at 50, at 60, 70, 80, like, you know, fortune willing, um, however long that I live. But I think that when I was 12, I thought, I used to read, as I said, the magazines all the time, and I was obsessed with looking at credits. So I'd look at the masthead of a magazine i would read every uh, name at the end of a movie or at the end of a tv show so i'd always be looking at who were the people who were building the products okay. that i loved wow because that's where i wanted to be and every time i looked at a designer i loved or anyone in fashion they always went to central st martins so i was like well i want to go to central st martins but i didn't want to make clothes so then i ordered the prospectus i remember it came to my grandma's house and I saw this course and I was like, this is what I want to do. It's everything fashion, but without making clothes. And then I telephoned them on my landline and uh, said, what do I need to get onto this course? They were like one A level. I was like, fine, I'm going to, uh, I'll, you know, I was very academic actually. So I was like, that'll be easy. And then I just plotted out my whole school to do this 
uh, degree. Listening to you talk about the fact that you you were you know you'd look at who create you know you'd you'd read the not just you'd read Vogue or you'd watch a movie, but you'd look for the names of the people that had actually created that thing that you'd enjoyed, whether it be Vogue or the movie. And you, I think you said almost a fantasist, you know, you'd lie there and you'd dream about all the things you wanted to be. But it seems, it strikes me though, that, that you're not a fantasist. You, you're able, if I, you look at your incredible career so far, you're able to have a picture in your mind or a vision in your mind of what you'd like to be or achieve that's actually not very difficult. We can all do that. But what you've got is the doing it. You know, you be you can then get up and actually go and make it happen. What, what do you think? Where do you think you get that from? I don't know if that's an, an, a question that's even possible to answer, but it seems to me that's the really impressive, difficult bit, the doing, not the dreaming. Yeah, I think I'm really lucky in having like both sides of the brain in that way. Like, I can be very creative and I can be super commercial. I can be really daydreamy and macro, but then I can also go really down in the weeds and in the details. And I think to answer your question about the reason why I think I've developed, uh, you know, I don't know whether it's nature or nurture, but develop this action-orientated side of my skills is because I don't actually have anything or anyone to fall back on. So if I sit there daydreaming and I don't put anything to action, then there's no result. And if there's no results, then I am not going to make myself financially secure. And if I don't make myself financially secure, no one else will. But I've been in the city for 19 or so years now. And over that time, what I realized is that it is this sort of never-ending like ladder, right? Like you're going up, you're climbing up, you're earning more, you're acquiring more respect, more power, more knowledge, etc. But at the same time, I'm starting to reflect on, well, what has the cost been? Uh, and I don't just mean the, the literal cost of like being stressed all the time yeah. and working yeah. like 12, yeah. 16 hour days, which is one type of cost, but the cost of loneliness, of not being around my family, of not necessarily spending quality time with friends. And I've supported women in their businesses and supported women in their work. And what I'm hearing now from them is, actually, we don't want to work. We want to just maintain. So rather than think, okay, if I work 20 or 30 or 40% more than what I'm supposed to, I can get to the next ladder, I can be promoted, etc. I just want to work enough to maintain. And I want to prioritize my family, my friends, myself, my relationships over work. I, I, I get and, you know, in, in the, you know, in the job I do, I recognize a lot of what you're describing in terms of, you know, what I see and hear within the people that we employ. So if that, if that, is, if that is a kind of, uh, let's say, a groundswell of, of sort of opinion, belief, discussion, what do you think are the potential implications of that? So what are the what are the implications for you as an employer, for us as an employer? There's so many and they're really big, right? Like really big, big um, culture generation shifting consequences. So you said me as an employer and I'm going to start there because, you know, when I said to you earlier that, that this is a challenge to balance, my biggest challenge is the how do I how do I be truthful with my team that I'm aware that this is a feeling for yeah. them? 
while also wanting to motivate them to stay in work yep. <laughs> and not just like quit and leave. Our relationship with work is what is being redefined right now. So there'll be individual employees resigning or moving to jobs that suit them better, such as more flexibility, remote work, etc. There are going to be people who just go off grid. And I'm always fascinated by these people, mm. actually. I'm fascinated by anyone that rejects society. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I'm in awe of yeah. people who reject society. Um, but I think if this starts happening more and more, it's a bit like what we saw in COVID. Uh, productivity is going to go down. And, you know, we're already seeing the effects right now. People say that we're heading into a recession of two years of lack of productivity, full productivity, lack of supplies, etc. So I think that the young people today are definitely prioritizing their friends, their relationships, the things that they find more important than just making money for a corporation. And it's the role of companies and corporations to think, well, how can we keep them engaged? And for me, it's always been about community. It's like, if I can build a community around the workplace, you're staying for more than just your daily grind. You're staying because you've essentially replaced your family that you've left behind in the suburbs. You've moved to the city. And you've got no family. So how can we create a family 2.0 to make work feel uh, like a place that you can bring your whole self to? Yeah. And I yeah. think um, this period of reflection, we're calling it the great resignation, but what it really is is a great reflection. Mm, that's a great way of thinking about it. It's looking in front of the mirror and being like, has everything I've been working for for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years been worth yeah, it? Yeah. Because we're not necessarily happy. So... You've talked in the past about this being an age of entrepreneurship. And yet, you know, listening to you now, I feel like you maybe aren't so sure that, it. you know, you're not so sure about that. Maybe it is an age of entrepreneurship, but maybe or maybe it is, but it shouldn't be. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but uh, I, I'm interested in your thoughts. I think you're right that I'm not sure, mm. if I'm honest. And that's actually quite a big thing for me to say, because... Yeah, my whole life I've been very, very sure. Well, you're actually. a serial I mean, it's a, it's a cliched that, expression, but you are a serial entrepreneur. I mean... Yeah, I think that I'm in this period right now of reflecting and questioning what my motives are and what my long-term... If my long-term goals are my own or if they are an image that I've been sold to keep the system running... Sounds quite existential. Yeah. <laughs> that is. I have no. I have no idea the answer to that. Do you, do you get, I what, totally I'm get what you're saying? You've been in business long enough. You've been in business. Oh, I totally, long I totally get what to you're saying. Like... I, I, sorry, I, I, I just don't have an answer. I'm very traditional in in the sense that I think that Adam Smith, you know, the economist, was basically right that we. The, the human condition is we do strive to improve our, you know, even no matter what, there's nobody at the top telling us that we should try and improve our condition. Uh, you know, we, we want to do that ourselves. That's my, that's, and, and left to our own devices, we will. So I want to, when you say that there is no one person telling hmm. us like what to, um, you know, basically telling us to improve our surroundings yeah. and it is a human condition. I completely agree. But I think the reason it isn't one person, it's because it's an entire 
institute it's a system of institutions mm. that are telling us to improve our condition and i think while humans have always improved their conditions what we've done now is accelerated the rate of those improvements beyond uh you know like what the planet is capable of sustaining and i think that's kind of what has led us to the problems that we have today whether it is climate change or loneliness as an endemic and right now we're in this rapid rapid pace of growth and i'm in startups right we're a venture capital backed mm. startup which means that the the point of being venture capital backed is that you accelerate even faster yes. than what would be a normal company and i'm just quite interested around this idea of like sustainable and healthy growth yeah. and how can we do that for our team our company for our users and for myself so i wouldn't say that i'm completely dismissive of this age of the entrepreneur i think that where i'm spending a lot of thinking time right now is how can we um i guess i'm trying to have my cake and eat it how can i be able to sustain how can i be an entrepreneur how can i satisfy my employees my shareholders my users while also maintaining a sense of self-satisfaction time for myself mm. to be able to build quality relationships with my friends and family yeah. these are really these are the first thing that any founder or ceo will tell you goes yeah. your health goes your relationships yeah. go yeah. um that easier to cut off than it is to like yeah. not answer that email or not take that meeting so yeah i'm just trying to think how can i do it all while also not you know overworked i'm not an entrepreneur so i so so i uh, you know i can't speak from personal experience but but it strikes me that um that tension one of the reasons one of the appeals to go, of, of, to me or to anybody certainly to you because you've done it to go and create your own business is to free yourself from having to work for somebody else and somebody else's rules and somebody else's and yet yet the trade-off in a sense is you become caged in by a whole different set of challenges right <laughs> that is exactly yeah. it i tell people this all the time you think you're starting a business to work for yourself the minute you start a business you're actually working for everybody else your time is not your own but it does give you incredible freedom and i would say that the thing that i love most about starting companies is you know going back full circle to the beginning of this conversation my fantasies are able to become realities yeah. through teamwork yeah. and through um you know ingenuity of all of the different skill sets that are around the table i absolutely love working collaboratively and seeing things come to fruition um you know that was previously just sitting in my head absolutely i mean you've sort of answered what i was about to ask you which is i mean yes it's i'm sure incredibly difficult challenging scary lonely sometimes all those things that you read about with with successful entrepreneurs but it also strikes me that it must be incredibly rewarding you know you must get really such a is. sense of fulfillment um when you know when a plan comes together it's not just that it's like when you hear from our users or from women what they get back from our platform it actually like warms my soul and keeps me going so the thing that makes me the happiest is helping our users really understand uh i guess critical thinking mm. and also that the the default that they've got right now is not necessarily how it has to be in any area of your mm. life 
we've refrained from being for a specific um, demographic, as in like working women or mums yeah. or, you know, j just Gen Z women or students, because I think that it's not really the demographic of a type of um, woman that we're after, but it's more of the mindset. Yeah. It's a it's a growth mindset. Like, do you want to do you want to um, like what is it that you want really in your life and how can we help you get there? And, and and that when I hear back that we're helping people, that really warms my yeah, soul. Yeah, that's a great and that's a fantastic ambition. I mean, you know, listening to you talk about the businesses that you've created and also this sort of internal dialogue to it, well, external as well dialogue around how the world is changing, how the world of, the world of work is changing, how your own personal ambitions to an extent are changing. How, do do you think that your leadership style? has and is evolving i've really learned to separate leadership and management mm. because it took me a long time to realize that there were two different things um i'm a much better leader i think than i am a manager but i definitely had to learn how to be a manager and also um how to motivate people when they weren't necessarily already partially motivated yeah. I would say that my leadership style, in fact, you know, my 11-year-old son who's taken the mick out of me the other day because, um, you know, my, my uh, cousin was in the house and I was saying, oh, my goodness, I've got to go to these two meetings. I've been double booked. And she jokingly said, I'll go as you. And they won't be able to tell the difference because of the accent. And then my son, who's 11, chimed in, I'll go, mum. This is what I have to say. Okay, so we're building an app and you can do it. <laughs> it's really funny that he stilled my leadership in two sentences, which is, this is what we're going to do. And you can definitely do it, guys. And uh, I would say that he's uh, correct because he's very clever like that. It's My leadership style is laying out the work to be done, circling back on why we're doing it and providing the bigger mission and then letting everybody know that they are important to this mission and that they all play a role and then basically off me you know offline breaking down everything that needs to be hmm. done to to make sure it happens and i think that that's where i thrive so actually you know my leadership style is really suited to small teams right because that doesn't work beyond yeah. a yeah. certain size and when I've realized it, the biggest thing I've realized about myself is I excel in taking things from zero to 10 and I need extra support in taking things from 10 to like 100 right. and then 100 to 1,000. Right. And I guess at that point, it's when people decide uh, the role of founder CEOs, you start to transition yeah, yeah, yeah. and whether like you might be right for that. And at this point now, I'm sort of in the process of learning those skills. It's like, well, how do you... Um, lead a team of mm. 500 mm. if that's necessarily yeah. what you want to do um so yeah i think what is my leadership style really transparent it's hard for me to say i feel like you should ask my team yeah really. I'm, gonna, I'm just I'm gonna get very... your son on and ask him next time because i think he's <laughs> i think he's nailed it hasn't he uh you've talked in the past i think well not just talked in the past but you've written in the past uh, in fact may maybe i'm right in saying you do this every year i'm not sure but you you sort of at the end of the year do a list of things that uh that went wrong or that you know that that, that didn't work out how you wanted to i'm not sure exactly the phraseology you use um 
is that a you know tell me talk to me about that that seems like quite a sort of soul bearing exercise seems like possibly quite cathartic what's the what's the thinking behind it for you so i've got no qualms about saying when i've messed up even during this conversation i i don't pretend to have all the answers all the time or you know what I mean? Just say, like, this is exactly how it should yep. be. And there's always a little bit as a leader of fake it till you yep. make it or as a founder. You know, I, I can put that confidence on when I need to. But I think that there is something very um, rewarding about saying where you might not have gotten things right, the type of information that you might need to make better decisions next time. At the end of the day, I think it's really unrealistic. It's a bit like what I said about raising a family, you know, having a child without your entire family mm. around. It's completely unrealistic to give a 22, you know, 25, 32, 35 year old first time founder like millions of pounds and expect them to instantly know what to do. Like, that's ridiculous. There are startup founders every single day with more money than they've ever had in their bank account in their life and suddenly 20 people to manage and you expect them to instantly know what yeah, to do yeah, that is yeah, ridiculous yeah. so i think that i think that like if i can do as much reflection as possible to see uh where there are gaps in my knowledge the better uh that i can be for my business and for my you know as i said my shareholders my team and my users uh, otherwise, you're just stumbling on and on blind. So the, the title of the article is Everything I Ever Got Wrong in 2019 or Everything I Got Wrong in 2020. Yeah, I think it is good to be reflective. I, I write a lot. I like sharing my thoughts. I've got a lot, lot in my head, Chris. So I need to get it out in an organized fashion. Well, I, well, I think it's one of the things fascinating about it is, is your preparedness to share it. Actually, I mean, I, you know, I think I, I joke with people that I'm far more of a, an emotionally repressed northerner. So it's the sort of thing, you know, that I find quite hard to do. I, I admire the just the sort of the authenticity and the the willingness to them and share them, um, which I think is really unusual and interesting. Do you know why I think it's important to share? Because otherwise we live off very surface level myths. So if we don't share the thinking, because these articles I would write would be a couple thousand words long, you would just, I say you, I've, I feel like my audience or people who follow me on social media or see me out and about the town, they would be getting a snapshot, a blink in the eye of what my life might be like. And they're like, oh, you know, Sharma won this award or she's done this and she's done that, everything must be incredible. And I actually think the medium of writing rather than social media um, or even speaking, because while I'm speaking, I'm trying to process my thoughts as I'm talking. It's not the same as writing an article, going back, doing a draft, sharing it with your friends, getting their feedback on it. So I think it's really important um, for my audience to understand that what they see on social media is just one tiny tiny element of what might be going on in my life or in my mind and to not hold themselves up uh you know by what i'm doing because i think i used to do that i used to be like oh my goodness that person is um you know they've raised this amount of money or they've done this thing or they got this client and you compare yourself to people but you never know what sacrifices that person's made or what they've gone through so I try and be as transparent as possible because I'm very, very aware 
of my position as a unofficial big sister, which is what many of my members call me. Um, I don't want to be a big sister that's got a face painted on, but you don't really yeah, see yeah, what's, yeah. what's underneath. I think you. that would be unfair to drive people in one direction. So you've been, which we've talked about, you've been really, really effective at taking ideas and turning them into reality. Do you have any advice for anybody listening to this who has an idea um, and where they would get started in terms of from, you know, from the idea to reality? Yeah, so as I've kind of flirted with on this conversation is that I'm really, really um, interested in community and collectivism. And I think that when you have an idea, you sometimes um, might feel like I, I can be the only one to do it or I have to work on this by myself or I have to own the IP or the trademark. I hear this a lot. And what's going to happen if people steal my idea? And we've got this kind of very strong individualism in our culture today that makes people think they have to do everything by themselves. So my first piece of advice if you have an idea is try and build a team around your idea and I don't just mean find a co-founder I mean essentially kind of treat it like as like I said earlier a university project or a group task at school you know how many people can you get around the table to contribute to your idea in return for equity or payment or whatever it is or just simply for the crack of it um you know, we don't have to do it alone, which is definitely the mistake I made in like the first 10 years of my uh, career as an entrepreneur. I thought I had to do everything myself. Um, and that's just simply not true. That's great advice. And that's my takes me to my penultimate question, which is what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? The best piece of advice I was given, to be honest, every time someone tells me something and it really irritates me and actually makes me a bit angry that means it's usually correct <laughs> right, yeah. and i remember one time somebody telling me you're too in the weeds get out of the weeds and he really irritated me i was so angry but actually i think about it all the time because it's very easy for me as i said to go into the detail um and do things like because i can do them quicker just get things done myself instead of trying to stay at macro level where there are things that only I can have an impact yeah. on, like, yeah. you know, as a CEO of the company. Yeah. yeah. I'm, like, trying to focus on those. That's great advice. And and so finally then, um, you've achieved so much. I mean, as you said earlier, you've achieved so much um, already. Uh, what's next? So I don't think I've achieved that much, Chris, as I'm sure most most founders or entrepreneurs will say to you, I, I think that I've scratched the surface of what we as a team are capable of. Um, and what I'm really excited about next is the work uh, that we're doing in around helping onboard our members into Web3. So we're launching a DAO as part of um, the Stack World. So a DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. Mm -hmm. So it means that a small group of our members will decide what happens within this DAO. Um, we're giving them a whole bunch of education in Web3 so that they are aware of what is happening in this upside down world, as I like to call mm. it. Um, and yeah, I think it's like a chance for me to experiment with collectivism at its, at its extreme. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, how could I create like a mini a mini co-op within mm. the organization that I have and kind of fulfill those 
you know, yeah. radic radically yeah. things that I was yeah. talking about earlier. Yeah. Because I think it's um, it's important for the future of where technology is going, mm -hmm. um, especially that women are not left behind. Because otherwise, I feel like we'll end up in a in a in a Web three world that will just reflect, if not more reflect, the gross inequalities that we see right now. Um, but I also think for my own satisfaction, I love a, a DAO. When I first read about a DAO, I was like, wow, this is the vehicle I've been waiting yeah. for all my life. Like, this is truly exciting. Well, that's uh, absolutely fascinating. And uh, we look forward to seeing the outcome of that, the business of the future. So uh, we'll have you back on to get us uh, to, to get you to tell us how it all goes. So, Sharmadine, it's been absolutely fascinating and inspiring talking to you. I really, really appreciate your time. Of all the people we've had on, uh, there hasn't been anybody who I've asked so few of the actual pre-prepared questions <laughs> and just let the conversation. I apologise for taking. Just... I apologise for taking you uh, off no, topic. No, no, it's been uh, your your answers have been far more interesting than my questions. So I really appreciate it, and thanks so much for your time, and thanks for coming on. Thanks, Chris. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review No Bullshit Leadership on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. Thank you. <laughs>